We're live. Welcome, friends from around the world. I'm uh, in the middle of a little kombucha explosion. That's how we're going to start this episode. I was going to say I wanted this episode to be sponsored by Hatha Kombucha, an awesome kombucha company here in Israel. They didn't give me any money, but I like their product, so I was going to shout them out. But then they exploded everywhere. This is Kiwi Lime Kombucha. You can find them on Instagram. It seems to be the yellow kiwi It's that's new and it's in. Uh, and for those who don't know kombucha is, it's fermented tea. It's high in probiotics, supposedly healthy. But why the hell are we talking about kombucha? This is the great debate. We're here to have a vibrant conversation. Welcome, everybody. Uh, for those who are here for the first time, what is the great debate? It's not a debate where two sides work to defeat one another. That's not what we're here to do. Muhammad and Daniel are not going to fight. They may disagree, mm-hmm. but the goal of the great debate is to come together and find common ground on the most important issues we face. That's what makes this debate great. We're looking for a deep, nuanced conversation on important issues. And that's that's what you'll see here. So welcome, everybody. Um, without f- further ado, I'm very excited to announce our guests. On my bottom left, we have Daniel Brooks, who is the founder and current board member of 3GNY, a nonprofit organization from the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, whose mission is to educate the public on their family stories and lessons of the Holocaust. As an Israel advocate, he has organized demonstrations, spoken on panels, and written op-eds in the Times of Israel. Daniel is currently associate director of Fuel for Truth and an educator with Club Z, both nonprofit organizations dedicated to Israel education. On my bottom right, Mohammed Faraj is a Palestinian American that has lived both in Palestine and New York. He is currently a graduate student at Brooklyn College for bilingual childhood education. He dedicates his free time discussing various topics, including the Palestine-Israeli conflict and advocating for human solutions to the conflict. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure. So, you know, it's interesting. I... I, the guests generally uh, send in their bio. Sorry, I still have this exploded kombucha here. I'm trying to take a sip. But um, so, um, Muhammad, you, you sent in your bio to me and it says Palestine-Israel conflict. And I've never called it that before. I just read it off as Palestine-Israel conflict. And it was super counterintuitive because my whole life I've known it as the Israel-Palestine conflict. So it's interesting how which side of the border you were born on or what your side is. It's It's kind of how how you frame the conflict. So it's an interesting observation that I just experienced firsthand. Um, Before we get started on the topics, I'd like to just give you both a few minutes to explain what your connection to the land of Israel and Palestine is. Um, Whoever wants to start, the floor is yours. Go ahead, Daniel. Great, thanks, Mohammed. Um, So I uh, I grew up in New York City. I'm uh, I'm Jewish, I'm not Israeli. I grew up the grandson of four Holocaust survivors, and um, as you mentioned, Adar, I founded that organization 15 years ago, third generation New York. Um, growing up, the, the connections I felt to Israel were, were primarily a couple things. It was my Israeli cousins who'd sometimes visit New York. Um, I have aunts, uncles, other cousins who are Israeli, who live in Israel. A few of them actually just made Aliyah. And my mother who was a marketing executive for an Israeli bank, Bank of Pauline, in, in New York um, when I was growing mm-hmm. up. Um, so it's actually ensconced in like Israel marketing materials uh, here and there. 
So I, I, I did get this, this generic kind of pro-Israel understanding um, without really fully knowing what it was. Um, I first visited um, Israel on an organized trip in 1993. This was before birthright, so the parents had to pay up. Um, I've been there four times since. Um, and as I mentioned, I grew up sort of understanding Israel in a, in a generic sense, but it was really in 2001, during the second intifada, that I committed to educating myself more. I remember just reading coverage of what was going on, the bombings, Israel's military responses, and I recall feeling that it was unfair um, and without really knowing exactly why. There might have been some moments where I was like, oh, that I know that to be not true, but um, but I was embarrassed that I didn't really know why, yet I felt it was unfair. And so I was like, that's not acceptable. I really have to learn the issue. Otherwise, why am I getting emotionally invested in this, in this topic? So I just committed myself, um, that was almost 20 years ago, to uh, knowing the history, um, knowing the people as best I can. I don't speak to many Palestinians. In fact, um, it's, it's pretty rare. So I'm, I'm really humbled to be here talking to Muhammad. Um, and I've just committed myself to, to knowing more about the issue, more, more knowing more about the history, defending the truth, pushing back against the hate, and ultimately creating productive channels for conversation and resolution. So thanks again for having me. Awesome. Great to have you, Daniel. Muhammad, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, my connection to the land basically started with the fact that I was born there. I was born in Jerusalem, but moved to New York. My parent, me and my parents moved to New York when I was super young, before I even like became a year old. And I stayed there until um, I went to a Islamic school here in New York until I was in third grade. And then they wanted me, they were worried that I was going to get too Americanized and like kind of forget about the culture and stuff. So they brought me back to uh, Palestine, to Ramallah specifically, where uh, I lived until my senior year of high school. I graduated, um, you know, I graduated my uh, high school over there and moved back to New York. And now I go back. Um, almost every summer, except for this summer, obviously, but I go back every summer uh, for about a month or a month and a half at a time to go visit. And so, like, for the most part, uh, similarly, I, I grew up in a pretty pro-Palestinian generic um, household, but it wasn't very, my, my parents weren't really that political, but I still had, like, we were still taught in school, you know, being, being very patriotic, being very patriotic and stuff. And at that point, like, I've never met the only Israelis I've ever met were soldiers or settlers that you'd see when going on a highway from one city to, to the other. And so I didn't really have any opinion of, uh, I just knew that Israel bad and that was about it. And when I moved to New York and, you know, especially like Brooklyn and Queens, like I can imagine it's very diverse. You meet a whole bunch of different people and undergrad, you get to meet more people and stuff. Since then I uh, uh, began to like, tried to my best to look at the whole situation from a third person perspective and try to be more objective when analyzing what's happening and trying to look at it from a more of a humanitarian issue as to oppose, as opposed to an ethnic uh, conflict. So um, since then, yeah, I've been trying to like my, my opinions change uh, uh, pretty frequently depending on what, um, uh, what we're specifically talking about at the moment. But yeah, uh, I'm just always hoping like to learn and like engage more with people that have different opinions so I can formulate a better opinion myself. Awesome. It's great to have you here too, Muhammad. So 
Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that uh, to all our guests from around the world, welcome. Uh, maybe let us know in the chat where you're you're from and uh, let's engage in a vibrant dialogue in the chat as well. Also feel free to ask questions. We will get to the questions towards the end. And if you like what our guests are saying, you can find their contact information in the event description. Feel free to reach out to them. They're always happy to engage in dialogue after the fact. We also have a little after party in our Discord server. For those who are unfamiliar with Discord, it's um, it's just another messaging app, but really for gamers. So we have like a, a private chat there that's for Patreon members and for guest speakers. Uh, if you haven't already, check out the Patreon. It's uh, link link in the description. You could unlock all sorts of cool benefits and tiers by supporting this channel on Patreon. And even if you don't want to support Patreon, that's fine. Give us an upvote on this video, subscribe, or even downvote if you don't like it. We're cool with that too. Just express yourself. <laughs> that's wrong. We just want expression. So, Mo, you in our in our Discord chat earlier, you you brought up an interesting point about Zionism, and and I think this is a good place to start the conversation. You want to share what what the question was? Yeah, sure. So, I was interested in the fact of how Zionism changed in the modern context as opposed to how it started in the minds of um, Menachem Weizmann and uh, Theodore Herzl and that sort of thing, and how it basically gradually shifted from being a more secular movement to a um, religious movement as as it is in its current manifestation. And so I was curious to see what you guys, either of you, like thought about that and like if we've reached similar uh, analytical conclusions on what on on this sort of shift sure yeah daniel you wanna you wanna start sure um so uh, you know at its heart zionism always political zionism um the movement to establish you know has been the movement to establish and and maintain a, a jewish state in in the land of israel um or at least in a part of the land of israel and um while there have been some movements uh, towards religious Zionism in the last several decades, I mean, ultimately, that's still how most Jews and most Zionists define Zionism. Um, that's still effectively what Israel is. You know, Israel is still um, a, a collective. It's a, it's a Jewish collective. So, you know, we might have policies that may be influenced by those on the right, those on the religious right in Israel. Um, more so now than perhaps before, but at this, but ultimately, it's still that same basic definition, um, which I think also we'll get to this, but I think it's still the heart of of the conflict, which is just you know denying that that right for a, a Jewish collective, you could say, or Jewish society, to put it a little more more succinctly. Yeah, well said. And um, just to build on that, you know, it's true that in its initial days, Zionism was secular. But that's because it was, you know, still quite a small movement. Now, it's not that it's become religious. It's that there is also religious Zionism. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you around 50 percent of the Jews living in Israel are observant Jews, the other 50 percent are secular. And, you know, it's there's a spectrum of what it means to be observant or secular. But reg regardless of who you ask, the, the secular or observant, the majority of them would identify as Zionists. So it's not that uh, Zionism has moved from being secular to religious, it's just it's now also religious. And I think that the religious Zionism might cause more waves because it, it's, you know, it's generally, you know, we hear about the 
settlers and and th their ideology and it, you know there, there's a lot a lot of focus on 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 religious Zionism because they're they're essentially more directly connected to the conflict because of of where they're living so I think maybe that's why there's a perception that religious Zionism is is the Zionism today I just think it's most Jews are Zionists some are secular some are Israeli uh, something to add to that I think the 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 term Zionism also creates a lot of con confusion because if you ask somebody who's pro-Israel what Zionism means, it, they'd say it's just the right to self-determination on our ancestral homeland. That's essentially what it is with some small variations. But if you ask somebody who opposes Israel what Zionism is, they would tell you it's akin to Jewish supremacy. Uh, it's people who hate Palestinians and commit genocide. And uh, what, what I'm going to tell people who have this version of, of Zionism, if you have any interest in, in engaging in dialogue with Israelis, then you should use the definition that they use because this is their own personal identity. And if you want to be able to communicate with them, you, should, you, know, you, you shouldn't take what they view as an essential part of their identity and turn it into something that's as horrible as supremacy or even Nazism, which it's often compared to. So that's just a, a little pointer for how to have better dialogue between pro and anti-Israel people. It's to agree on what Zionism means. Um, yeah, before I get to what sure. I talked about, I, I just wanted to add briefly to that. I mean, I think just because it doesn't help that the word Zion is not really understood and people don't really know what it connects to. And obviously it connects to the land, and but at its, you know, at its origin, Zion referred to, you know, a hill in Jerusalem, um, a fortress. And, and I think, you know, my Jewish education growing up did not provide that knowledge to me. So, you know, if you would have asked me when I was a young adult, you know, my twenties, what Zionism, I could, I could have told you very basically, but if you said, well, what does it mean? Like, you know, um, the etymology of it, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, and so I think that's also a barrier to understanding it. It just seems like an odd term. And anytime you have an ism there, I think it just, it just, it, it has a negative connotation. Yeah. You know, I, th that's, that's an interesting question because do we even need the term zionism can't we just say that you know we we're jewish and we believe we believe we have the right to homeland like what? that's that's what i was gonna say i feel like it's very difficult i think i don't even think it's very difficult i i think it's downright impossible to ever convince most palestinians that zionism is somehow anyway could be translated into a good thing and that's yeah. just literally that's from my experience i've been surrounded by palestinians my whole life and right. for the most part i just think that's what it is and the thing is with um really what the sticking point about Zionism that's really upsetting for Palestinians and for a lot of people around the world is that it, it excludes half the population of the land as part of being that state by like, by creating a quote unquote Jewish state or a homeland for the, for Jews, it basically excludes half the population basically tells Arab Israelis or Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza that you guys this is not a state for you guys. This is a state for only us. And so that's really the thing that, and it, it, it most likely stems from the fact that Zionism came from a past where nationalism was on the rise and where like a lot of like uh, colonialization was happening. And so like, I can see like how that originated, but I just feel like moving forward, it might need, it, it probably needs to change for the most part. Yeah. That's, there's something I wrote down that you said that that's just grabbing me, and and it's so basic. It's it's the idea, the framing of 
in the land where you were saying that that Palestinians see it Zionism as as you know a state for for just us guys and and not for us in in the land or you might have said in the whole land but you know it's understood that that Palestinians see the whole land as 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 theirs um, or at least to a large extent and I think you know a lot of a lot of Zionists don't don't see it that way I mean they might they might conversely see Israel as the entirety of the land but you know the way the way I see it is is there is a division and and to me there's nothing completely politically sacred about between river and the you know the land between the river and the sea and and you know some Zionists and I think rightly so have, have pointed out that you know the exact borders of river to the sea Palestine was actually a very brief period of, of history you know for a couple decades under the British mandate not to say that Palestinians weren't living or Arabs you know of, of that origin weren't living in different parts but there was also the east bank of the Jordan and that was considered historic Palestine as well um, by various people so I just you know it's 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 an interesting framework to talk about you know in the land quote unquote because different people have different interpretations of what that means all right yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's that's a very interesting point. So, what what do you think you know needs to be done? What what can we do to to move forward? Right, we're obviously having this this conversation, but uh, Muhammad, as as you mentioned, you know most Palestinians will not accept the term Zionism, and I'm sure many cringe even at the term Israel because I know from firsthand experience that me just saying the word Palestine is triggering to many Israelis. Right, so so this right. is the result of of a century of conflict and a lot of trauma, a lot of pain and trauma, which, which causes, you know, many, many of our people to be triggered by these terms. So what can, what can we do to, to make maybe even not necessarily these terms more um, acceptable, but just being able to, to bring both people together towards common ground. What, what do you see as, as good first steps to making that happen? Um, I would say, like, from my perspective, I feel since uh, the Israeli government has the upper hand and controls, pretty much has most control of all the situation that's going on in the West Bank and inside 48 or Israel, um, I feel like it's their uh, it's their duty and almost obligation since really, like, everything that Palestinians do is at the mercy of Israel. We don't, like, we can't drive from city to city without going through checkpoints, so we can't really... Um, we're really in the end of the day, like the PA is just basically a puppet government controlled by uh, controlled from with various levels of influence from Israel. And that's the reason why we're allowed to have this, this level of minor uh, autonomy. But I think for the, for the biggest thing is that Israel, the Israeli government needs to make a concerted effort to try to bring Palestinians into the fold and say that this is, this country belongs to you. And we understand we understand that the mistake that we did in the past, like for example, like America, like right now you see America is going through this sort of reawakening of saying that, oh, the the the, the founding of Americas, of the Americas wasn't as glorious as it seemed. There's a lot of indigenous people that got killed through, throughout the process. There was slavery involved. There was a lot of this abuse of minority groups. And then after that, America has came to the great for for better or or worse. Most Americans have come to the realization that what happened in the past is a mistake and that's why we have these movements and these um laws that are enacted to acknowledge these the past of america i feel like israel needs to do the exact same thing that regardless like we we know the creation the way that the state was created had a lot of immorality in it and a lot of suffering and a lot of pain but we we are here now and we got to find a way 
to look forward and try to live in a, a put ourselves in a situation where we live peacefully with our neighbors and see each other as um, brethren as opposed to enemies. So, so you're under the opinion that because Israel has most of the power that the onus is really on us to do most of the work uh, in reconciliation? Yeah, I, I feel, yeah, I, I do that. It's not that Palestinians just got to sit there and like just wait until like Israel comes and apologizes to them. It's just that uh, the way that like this probably goes into our conversation about the power dynamics is is that Israel, for the most part, has all the leverage in this in the situation. Like, like as you saw, like they basically made up the peace deal with Bahrain and um, uh, what was the other? Oh, yeah, the UAE about like you know normalizing between right. Arabs and Jews. And the thing was that the most the they, it's like they completely like forgot about like Palestinians. This whole like problem and all this conflict between the Arab world and uh, Israel came from is from the Palestinians is that like the Palestinians were the ones that were going under were undergoing through the trauma the UAE and and the Bahrain have never been engaged in any like direct physical conflict with Israel maybe maybe like during the the oil years where they like you know the all the gulf countries like cut cut um, oil to the US that had like some in fact like some effect but for the most part they were like relatively like peaceful already this i just seems like nonsense to me that and uh, avoiding of like a real problem of how do we address the problems that Palestinians face and how can we fix that? Okay, Daniel, where do you stand on, on the issue of, uh, and, and you know, this kind of goes into a topic that you proposed about power dynamics, right? So um, wh where, where do you stand on that? Who, who's the onus on? How do we reconcile? What's the way forward? Sure. Um, a lot to unpack there, but I'll, I'll start with the power dynamics. I, I do think it is uh, a very unfortunate myth that because Israel holds military, uh, greater military and greater economic power over the Palestinians, that the onus is on them to solve this conflict. A few reasons. One, um, Israelis have had 25 years of making concerted, very publicized efforts of solving the conflict. Now, we can disagree on the specifics of those efforts. At the same time, these have been very public. In Israel, Israelis have elected two prime ministers who ran on specific peace platform. So it's very much on record that Israelis tried this and it backfired. And I know it's very, um, it's kind of inconvenient to talk about the PA's activities for the last 25 years, but you know, I, we don't have to go through a whole timeline, but you know, when the PA was, was created, they wasted no time to use all their media to incite against Israel and essentially to tell their people that Oslo was a ruse. And, you know, we could, we could play around with the timeline and say, well, settlements increased, or maybe the Israeli military did X, Y, Z. But there's really nothing that trumps, um, you know, the, the so-called peace partner of the Palestinian Authority, you know, broadcasting very clearly that they have no intention of ever recognizing Israel or a two-state solution. So that's, that's one thing. Um, but I want to talk about the power because I, um, I'm just curious, what do you think, Mohammed, that the Palestinian, Palestinian society has any power? And what, and if so, what, what levers of power do they have? They probably have soft power and like influence in trying to influence each other. But in terms of economics or um, the basic, uh, the basic things that are needed to sustain human life, such as electricity, water, agriculture, that's almost all controlled by Israel. And so that's, that's what leads me to like put most of the onus on, um, the Israeli government, since they do have most, like almost most of the cards in their hand. And uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I would I would say that that specifically the Palestinians have two types of power that are often overlooked: um, diplomatic power and and media power. I think media power may be bigger than diplomatic, but I think they work hand in hand. Um, now we could argue that maybe the diplomatic power took a hit for this, you know, the latest uh, UAE deal, Bahrain. I would say that whole, you know, the way you said they were left out, they were completely forgotten about, which, you know, not, not entirely. I mean, I don't want to get into all the specifics of this Trump deal, but they were invited. But even before that, in 2014, you know, the, P, the PA explicitly said we will never again directly negotiate with Israel. And so that's, that's very relevant. I mean, it didn't even need to hear that announcement. They, for, again, for decades are telegraphing that they are going to try to hold out politically and not sign any agreement with Israel. So I get that Israel has power on the ground, but the reason that, that the military occupation of certain parts of West Bank have perpetuated is because they, need, they can't hand over this land and this infrastructure to moderate Palestinians such as yourself, right? They need, um, they need a political entity. And I think that's often overlooked, that we are dealing with people, but you know, really at the end of the day, what affects people? It's, it's their leadership, right? It's, it's politics, it's power. So, I mean, I have heard from Palestinians who are moderate and, and want to make peace with Israel. Um, and you know, when I was in Israel, I spoke to, to several and it was very, I was heartwarmed. At the same time, I realized that there needs to be, and this is where the onus, this is where the responsibility comes in. Because um, you were saying that, you know, you were kind of t- tying this to the civil rights movement now, this, this big moment. And actually, I, I agree to a large extent. I, but I think I see it the other way. Um, Israel's already had these conversations about their origins, some of the things that happened in the 48 war, right? The racism that goes on in Israeli society, like it does in any society. Um, I'm not to say that those conversations should be over. I mean, they're always ongoing. But I don't think there's been any equivalent conversation in Palestinian society. I think it's actually shockingly mute. I think that people are intimidated from engaging on these issues, as we've seen evidence of people who want to engage with Israel and they're intimidated. So I think that's a real problem. And I think that it's not going to be overnight, but ultimately the Palestinians have to start a dialogue, an internal dialogue. Um, from what I've seen, that hasn't happened. And I think that, you know, like we're reconciling our past as Americans. I think Israelis have already done that to a large extent. You've had the new historians, You've had, you know, Israeli media, as you know, is very tenacious. These conversations are always going on. I think Palestinian, um, I think Palestinians have a lot of people who do want to have these conversations, and and they're literary. I think they're in the media. They have a lot of media channels, and it this needs to happen because that's going to what that's going to be what drives the politics. That conversation. Let's hear yeah, that's, on that the conversation that Palestinians need to have. I'm sorry. Can you repeat the last part again? I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on the need for, for Palestinians as a collective to have this conversation, meaning what do they want? What do we want as a collective? And do we need to defeat the radicals and extremists in our midst? Right. Uh, uh, Mohammed, yeah, go ahead, before you go, uh, uh, Daniel, I think it's great points. So I'd love to hear um, Mohammed's thoughts. I just want to make a quick comment. Chat. Take a deep breath. It's Okay. Learn from Daniel and Muhammad what productive dialogue is all about. There's no reason to be hating one another. Just know that you will never convince an Israeli or an Israeli will never convince a Palestinian to change their mind if you're acting hateful towards them. And if you're delegitimizing them and not even recognizing the right to exist. So again, breathe. We can do better, guys. We can do better. Um, 
And Muhammad, I'll give it to you. I just I, I want to add something to what Daniel said that you know I think kind of sums it up. So, you know, it seems obvious that those with the most power have the most responsibility to to make change, and and there's a lot of truth to that. But when when we when an Israeli hears that, their natural reaction is to say, "But all the Palestinians need to do for there to be peace is allow us to live to, is just accept this here. But if we want peace," The process to attain that is so complex. We don't even know what to do, which borders, you know, there's just it, like, like the, the process for, for Israelis to take control and get to peace is so challenging. But and then most Israelis say all Palestinians need to do is accept us living here. And that's fine. Now, I understand that's easier said than done, because after years of humiliation and oppression and losing more and more land to just say accept it especially with that Middle Eastern pride and honor, right? It, it's it, it's not a realistic explanation, but this is how many Israelis see it. So it's like, you know, how can we respond to that? So, you know, that's just some food for thought. I'm, I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts. So so that's the thing, like, for example, like like we were, it was mentioned before that Palestinians vary in their opinions of what it is and how the conflict is and what should happen and stuff like that. But the thing is, like, for example, me, I'm, I don't come from a family of refugees. I, I come from a city, uh, from a small town adjacent to Ramallah that maintained most of its land, only got some land confiscated for the settlement of uh, Beit Al uh, near Ramallah. But for the most part, we kept most of our property. I find it hard for myself in a straight face, like go to a person, that a refugee that came from Yaffa and got, ended up, families ended up in Gaza, going to them like, Listen, man, like this would just be over if you just learned to accept it. Like, you know, like, like, you know, whatever your grandpa lost their house. It yeah. is what it is. You know, what are you going to do? You know, like I, 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 it leaves a bad taste in my mouth for me to tell you like, yo, guys, just chill out while I yeah. have the luxury of like living in my city, going back to visit, not worrying about any like, like anything crazy happening over there. And so that's something that's it's very difficult. Like it's very difficult for me to uh, address if that, may, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh -huh. I hear you. Yeah. And now maybe if you want to um, address what, what Daniel asked about, uh, what, what conversations need to be had amongst Palestinians to. to... Uh, I feel like I feel like for the most part, Palestinians are still carrying on that uh, the trauma of their uh, parents or grandparents of like what happened to them. A lot of them still live in exile in um, either in America or they live in the West Bank. Like for the most part, like like Ramallah right now houses the most. I feel like most refugees out of any other city, any other Palestinian city, and so uh, outside of in the West Bank, outside of Gaza, Gaza probably has a lot more refugees over there. But I feel like the conversation that need, that's needed to be had is this is how I look at it from my perspective. I, I look at things from uh, from a humanitarian perspective, and it might be a little biased, but like I see what what is the path that could lead to people, less people dying and less people suffering for the most part and having be, being able to like enjoy their life for the part, for the most part, without having to fear for their lives. And um, I think for Palestinians, that conversation first needs to happen in terms of identity and what are we willing to compromise on in order to, make peace. And I'm only one person. I don't represent the majority of Palestinians. So uh, it's a very tough question to answer. But the, the, I, I believe the first part 
of this is to realize that a lot of people that live in Israel right now were born there. They're, they didn't immigrate anytime recently. They, this is the only place that they, that they know. And have and like just like we didn't have a, a, play, a, a choice in being born to this conflict, some, they didn't have either for the, yeah, for the most part. And so uh, we, we're just going to need to learn how to realize how like this land is for both of us without causing such hate and not animosity between us. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it's a very tough question, but that's like my go at it. I, I in the chat earlier, thank you, Mohammed. Uh, I told you guys that I wanted to ask a similar question because we started off defining Zionism. And I wanted to ask you, uh, Mohammed, you know, how do you define the Palestinian cause? I know that's, that could be a loaded term, but you know, yeah. it, you know, the free Palestine movement, um, it, you know, it's taken on different forms, but, but in, in my eyes, and I think in, in the eyes of a lot of, of Israel supporters, it's, it's maintained the same stance, you know, that, that it is against, um, you know, a, a Jewish state. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't think there's ever been, again, I, you know, I don't want to do a whole Oslo review, but I, I don't think there's ever right. been a real, you know, good faith effort to, to get to a two state solution. I'm not saying that, that all or even most Palestinians ever wanted that. I just want to understand, like, you know, the, the, the movers and shakers on the ground, you know, the guys, the activists, the academics, the, the, the politicians, you know, what would you, how would you define the Palestinian cause as they uh, forward it? And, and where do you think it's going? You think it is moderating? And I think, you know, I, I want to hear, hear that first, because I, I kind of got the sense that you were alluding to the fact that there should not be a Jewish state, at least the way it exists today. Yeah. Look into that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know Adar has had hosted this conversation many times before. And I think the idea of having a state based on a specific identity, and I know if I, I've heard other points, it's like, oh, what's wrong with having one Jewish state when, all, when there's all these other Arab states and stuff like that. But the thing is, I feel like the difference is that like Israel was a Jew, became a Jewish state by force. And whether whether the people that lived on the land liked it or not. And so the idea of like, having a state be imposed on the indigenous population seems very troubling to me. I don't know. It just doesn't sit well with me. And I'm trying to look at this from like a third person perspective. I feel like if a state does exist, it could be, it could be a homeland for the Jews, but as well as for Palestinians, I don't feel like one person, one ethnic group has a leg up over what they get to like what, how they define the state. I feel like the state should be defined by everyone that lives there and not just one uh, one ethnic group. And so I understand like all the traumas that happened in the in order that that, that was all the things that happened in Europe that caused the reason for the creation of a Jewish state. I can understand that and all the anti-Semitism that was plaguing Europe and such. But right now I just feel like the answer to it is not to make an island out of the, the old homes of a bunch of refugees and call and say like, this is a Jewish state, we're gonna do our own thing here. And like, if you like anyone else that lives over here, sure, you, you're citizens of Israel, but like first and foremost, the state is here to serve me, the Jewish citizen of the state. So yeah, that, that's 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 from my opinion, I guess. Thanks for sharing. Can I, can I just follow up on something you just said about um, Israel becoming a, a Jewish state by force? Sure. You feel um, the birth of Israel um, needed to needed to come about through force. 
or it was forced uh, upon the Jewish community? Uh, I feel like uh, during the creation of the state of Israel, Zionists were having mixed opinions among like the Jewish uh, people that lived in Eastern Europe or Western Europe at the time. And so the, the, the thing is that like, um, I'm sorry, can you like uh, ask the, the yeah, second? You, uh, said, um, you know, Israel becoming a Jewish state by force, it's, it's you know, right. whether people on the land liked it or not. And I know it's, it, 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 that kind of line is, is said very breezily often, like it's just sort of assumed that Israel was, you know, was birthed through force. And of course there's truth in that, there was a war. But I think, I think the problem with that, um, that implication is that Israel or Zionism generally um, you know, that violence necessitated its birth. Like it needed to uproot, it needed to, you know, dislocate, Palestinians needed to be dislocated for the birth of a Jewish state. And, and, and most Zionists take a very different view, is that a Jewish society was developing and getting bigger. And of course there was political opposition from the Arabs and, and even just, you know, on an individual level, there was opposition. But there was also, yeah, sure. there were also Palestinian Arabs who, who worked with, um, you know, the Jewish Zionists and wanted to be a part of this society or who said, you know what, we're going to be separated uh, at some point in the future, but I'm going to do business with this guy, this, you know, uh, this company or whatever. And there were Arabs who did benefit. And, you know, of course, it, they were undercut by by their radical brethren. And so I think there's a different view to, that a lot of Israelis say this was not inevitable. Palestinian dislocation did not have to happen. And right. That's but ultimately, that's ultimately a product of, of anti call it anti-Zionism, call it the war against Israel, but that happened before 48. I mean, that happened in the 1920s when you had... You right. Know, but, right. But yeah, like, from my understanding is that Palestinians before everything, like, for the most part, were very apolitical. People didn't really think about much uh, about, like, terms of politics or nationality and stuff. And the thing was that a lot of the early Zionist settlers that moved to Palestine were grew up in this sort of uh, nationalistic fervor that was happening all over Europe. And so they decided to, like, you know, they they got caught up in this, like, sort of nationalism and decided to immigrate to uh, a time mandatory Palestine. And so the thing what, the, the, the thing is, is that um, many, uh, ma many, like, from the different strains of Zionism that were going around, a lot of them, a lot of, uh, a lot of the early Zionists wanted to secure um, support from, like, the big, players in the Middle East at the time, which were Britain and France, in order to have this Jewish state in the land of Palestine. Oh, and then other people, like people you have, like the people like I mentioned earlier, like Menachem Weissman, who said that, like, listen, we don't need their help. We can just go settle in the land and we'll just be a reality. We'll just build stuff. And then, like, they can't just take us out. And while they're having this discussion about, like, creating the state of Israel, no one gave a crap, like, about what the Palestinians who were, like, living at the time thought. And so it's like Palestinians were just like, whatever, like it is what it is. It's happening. And then after that, when they felt like when the Palestinians that are living in 48, like the the previous things that happened before the Nakba, they started getting worried, saying, oh, like a lot of these uh, new settlers are buying off our buying land and taking so some people out and sort of thing. And like it got them on edge, I, I, I believe, uh, um, to be like with like good intentions. And then after that, you know, it just ended up in this sort of like struggle that ended up like carrying on till this day. But yeah, that's like, it's on, yeah, people say like, oh, like, like, oh, like it didn't have to be like this. Like, listen, if they just like accepted us as like the new uh, caretakers of the land, it's just like, yeah, you know, it would have been all cool and stuff. But like, it's not like people don't like give up that easily. People aren't just going to like 
I think it's part of human nature. People aren't just going to be like, oh yeah, like, yeah, sure. Come in. You, you become our new overlords. Thank you. Ottomans. Thank you. British. Uh, uh, let, let the new, let the new landlords come in, come in. It's not, it's not going to be that easy. And you know, a lot of like bad things happen. A lot of like Palestinians did some like messed up things stuff to us, right? Did to, to, to Israelis. And that's obviously has happened, but like at the same time, like it all stems from this sort of like deep nationalistic fervor of trying to create a one ethnicity state. But yeah, go ahead. You got something else yeah, to say? Let me let me just um let, let me let me just bring something up because I see people in the comments, sir. I, I don't know. We have like a, a very basic platitude comment uh, section today. <laughs> A lot of things that, you know, just with a little bit of logic and compassion, you could debunk. There's a common claim that uh, the original Zionists did nothing wrong because they bought the land from Ottoman landowners. And then, and this was before 48, they, they bought land from Ottoman landowners. There were Palestinians living on that land and many of them were picked off that land. And that's somehow legitimate because they bought it from the Ottoman landowners. Guys. We're not looking at like complex legal philosophy. That's not what this is about. Just because something is technically legal at a certain time does not mean it's moral. And don't expect the population that's living on a land for many generations to be okay with being kicked off because one wealthy person made a deal with another wealthy person. Like, come, come on. You wouldn't accept that if that was done to your family. So don't, don't hold Palestinians to double standard. That is an injustice that Israelis need to recognize saying, oh, but we bought it from Ottoman landowners. No, no, you know, you're not convincing anybody. That's, that's literally an echo chamber claim that, that does nothing to progress, nothing to progress change. Not a single Palestinian in the history of Palestinians existing have been convinced by that argument. So just drop it, it's useless. To, to that point, that's actually something, sorry to interrupt, that's something I, I looked into many years ago when I first got into this, you know, the story of the, uh, the Fayyim, right, the, the Arab farmers. Oh, him, yeah. And, and, and you know, there, there, that really wasn't done in the context of, like, let's say, conflict or war, right? It was, like, early on, I don't know the exact number, I think it was in, in the low thousands, but still, these, these are people, and that has a place in the story, in the narrative, right? These are people who were, you know... Um, lost their, their employment, lost their livelihoods, right? And that does affect the society. And I think, you know, yeah, we could always offer a perspective, you know, thing like, oh, well, you know, after that, then, then the Arab politics ruined everything, you know? But I mean, I think that's true too. At the same time, I agree with you. You have to acknowledge the humanity of, of people and, and the political decisions that affect their lives. Um, and that's the point I was making earlier about, about you know, the hardships that, that Arabs uh, and, and you know, the Palestinian Arabs have to go through is that it, it is a product of, of politics. It's not, you know, in a vacuum that just, you know, all of a sudden their lives are harder because, you know, Israel decides to make them harder. Um, but I just wanted to, to respond to a couple things before we move on. Sure, yeah. so, um, well, you know, uh, and again, you know, we're not doing a history lesson, but you had mentioned that early Zionists, you paraphrase them as, as essentially saying, we don't care about the Palestinians. And, you know, I can't speak for every Zionist pioneer, but there is a large record of early Zionist thinkers and activists who did reach out to Palestinian Arab notables, leaders, community leaders. There was a lot of um, cooperation going on on the ground. That is sort of like an, um, I would say, an understated part of history or like an unknown part of history. Um, you know, after the British 
came in even before the but especially after, you know, during the mandate years that Zionist leaders took it upon themselves to, to do outreach to the Arab leaders um, in, in Palestine. So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't just simply say, you know, they didn't care about the Palestinians. I would say they thought a lot about the Palestinians. Um, and, and often when there was meetings with Palestinians, they really wouldn't go anywhere. They wouldn't go too far on a political level. There was some economic cooperation, but I think that's just important to point out. Cause I, that's another throwaway line you sort of hear that the, like the Zionists, the Jews didn't really think about the, the Arabs there, which is, which is really, it's, it, it's a myth. Um, but I wanted to get to the point about, you know, you're talking about a, a uh, a society, the Jewish society there, that's sort of geared for their own people, right? Like in that scene, you know, how could an Arab accept that? Um, I can understand how, you know, the development of that Jewish society was very unique, right? Because it did happen over the course of, of a few decades, really. And, and that, you know, in the annals of history, that's, that is a unique story. Of course, the Jewish story is a unique story. But um, yes. we also have, I think what gets overlooked also is that the Arabs in that land also have a society. And, and it's been shaped by Zionism to a large extent in terms of providing an, uh, an ethos for them, like sort of a collective ethos. But I would say that that's, that's really the ultimate response I have for the argument that Israel is all about, you know, the Jews and housing the Jews. I mean, look at, look at Palestinians today. It's, it's a society that is very, yeah, there are disagreements, but at the same time, there is a lot of pride, a lot of collective pride in their history, right? Right. Um, you know, they, they know how to rock the kafia, they know how to sing their anthem, maybe not all of them. You know, they, they wave the flag, they have their own distinct culture. Not to say that they don't want to go to Israel and hang out in Israel, or they don't feel tied to really land at the same time. These are two, the bottom line is these are two separate societies that wish to remain separate. I guess, you know, there could be pushback on that. Like, what do I, you know, why am I projecting my views onto Palestinians? But it just seems based on a lot of empirical evidence, putting aside surveys, because I know some surveys are flawed, but based on the activities on the ground, these are two societies that are not interested in mixing and deleting themselves. So I think that sort of ultimately is where we have to go forward. We have to acknowledge that it's not just individual Arabs, we shouldn't expect them to leave. We shouldn't expect these societies to, to go anywhere. Right. No, I understand what you're saying. And uh, that probably like opens the door to a next conversation. So like, okay, knowing that well, we talked a little bit about the past, like what is, what does the future look like now? How does, how do we uh, address what's happening now? Like what happened in the past and like, how do we change it into something that's um, for the better in the future? If that makes sense. So like, I don't know like how you envision like a future, if you want like a two state, a one state, um, you know, maybe three states, I don't know, like, you know, Jerusalem by itself or something, but maybe if, yeah, if you can like share your opinion on that, you can go ahead. Great. Yeah. It's a central question. Um, I, I do think you know, it's funny because I think in, in a chat earlier in the week, you had framed something that kind of like caught my mind. Um, you had said something like, what would a future state look like? Mm-hmm. And you know, I was like a little triggered by that because it's kind of like, well, why a future state? We already have, like, is he, is he suggesting Israel would, like, not exist anymore? And, you know, we could get into all this, you know, discussion about, you know, how do you, you know, how do you change the structures of, of Israel to, to please whatever, let's say, the Palestinian cause wants? But I, I think the, my bottom line is just to be more direct with, your, with the answer, is that any solution has to involve this Jewish society existing. And that Jewish society existing needs to be able to defend itself. 
you know, again, we don't have to get into all the details, like what the borders have to be, what the, the power balance has to be. But ultimately, you know, any sort of collective like that, you know, wants to make, just like the Palestinians, they want to maintain their language in their schools, their own history, right? Their own court system, their own police. Um, not to say that Palestinians are, are all anti-Jewish or they don't want Jews around them, but at the same time, I think that that goes for both sides, right? They kind of like their own stuff. So mm-hmm. it has to start with that premise. We could always talk about borders or other specifics. I do think that that we often get caught up with like that map and the map is key, right? Because it's, it's reality. You, you see like, look how much land Israel has and look how little land the Palestinian Arabs have. Let's say if like, poof, we had some negotiations tomorrow and there was like a Palestinian state, it would, it would look like it was dwarfed by Israel, right? And yeah. It's, it's, I think some of that is, is, a, is a bit of a lack of imagination because, you know, and, and I'm going to mention Jordan and often that gets like eye rolls from people who are like, oh, that's like a right-wing Likud sort of like Jordan is Palestine thing. But I think what it speaks to is that the reason Jordan has always been, I'm not saying the entirety of Jordan, but if you just look at the map and you like slice off a fifth of, of like Western Jordan, and I'm just using this as an example, I'm not promoting this as an idea, you know, and you add that to, and you see connect parts of the West Bank to that Arab state, that Palestinian state, that's a pretty big state. And, and it looks like it's pretty much the same size as Israel. So if we're getting to the point where we need to instill a sense of dignity and honor, the Palestinian collective by having like equal things, that could be a, pro- a possible solution. It's like they want more land. Okay. You know, Jordan is 80% a Palestinian Arab now. I don't know why they're completely eliminated from, from the discussion. So that's one thing. But anyway, I just wanted to get back to your point. I, I do think that any solution just has to acknowledge reality. And the reality is that you have these two societies that don't want to mix, hence the absurdity of the apartheid comparison. Because no, ma- no matter how long Israel controls the territories, that's not going to make it apartheid. It's not going to undo Israel's Jewish character. Because ultimately, you have two, it's, it's a two-state reality on the ground. I know people might be like, what is he saying? You have Israel controlling everything. But you, it really is a two-entity reality. So I want to hear your thoughts on that and, and how you see it. I, I was thinking, like, maybe you can convince a couple of people that saying, like, oh, you know, maybe we just chop off a slice of uh, Jordan from this side over here. And, you know, we got two equal size of land, equal population. Everyone lives happily ever after. But I feel like the most important issue is, like, for a lot of Palestinians, especially in diaspora, is the refugees. And, like, what, how are they going to – they want they don't want to go back to Madaba or Irbid in Jordan. They want to go to – Majdal Shams, or they want to go to Yaffa, they want to go to Akka, they want to go to all these uh, like cities uh, that are part of right now Israel proper. And so, like, do they just like tough luck for you, dude? You, you got to go to uh, you, you got to go to Jordan now, <laughs> or like no, or no what? You know, go to Jordan. You know? I was just saying, you know, if 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 land and the development of land is an issue, right? Because we see we talk we hear about Gaza not having a lot of land and all that, and, and you want an economically viable state. You know, there could be creative solutions, but I want to address the thing with the refugees. And I know I, I spoke longer than you, but I'll get back. I just go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think no, I think the refugees is an important subject. But I, I, I think it's been so politicized that, you know, that's why I, I have a hard time taking um, seriously the notion that the Palestinian cause or call it the free Palestine movement has at its core humanitarian concerns. I'm not saying that. I mean, I think these are there. It's more political. And I think the, the political positions, for instance, like right of return it does speak to a humanitarian intent and like a sentiment. But when you have, you know, little children, little Palestinian children growing up in, in refugee camps, some, many of whom, I would, I would say it's a large minority, 
many of whom are already in the land of, of historic Palestine, right? Which is what Palestinians would call Palestine. They're growing up in, in you know, West Bank in refugee camps. That's unacceptable. And I think that's part of the problem. I think, you know, they're not all scattered to the four winds. Many of them are living in the land of their, right, of their families and ancestors. Can, right. can they move back to the same house? I mean, I think it's hard to unwind history and unwind the genocidal war that, that was thrust upon the Jewish community at the time. And I, I, you know, I understand from a personal family level, the pain, like, I think that's important to understand, but I think you can't overlook the political dynamic of this. And that if you do try to put this right of return in, in place, I don't think it's going to, that's a humanitarian response. I think it's actually going to lead to more bloodshed. Yeah. I, I'd like, to, I'd like to build on that. You know, I think that, uh, that's, you know, we often hear about a two-state solution being the solution. The, the European Union seems to support it. Uh, the United States supports it. The, the rest of the Arab world supports it. But it seems like people here on the ground are more and more looking at some kind of a one-state solution. Now, one state uh, scares many Israelis for demographic reasons. Uh, but there's, there's, you know, there's more sophisticated solutions that that people are coming up with. And, and the general idea is that all Israelis and all Palestinians will have access to the entire land. Palestinians can go to Jerusalem. They could go to Tel Aviv. They could visit all parts of, of Israel. Um, Israelis can visit all parts of Palestine. Now, also, what, what, what will it be called? Is, I even see it as less important, right? In, in Israel, an Israeli could stand in Ramallah and say, I'm in Israel, and a Palestinian could stand in, Palis, uh, in Tel Aviv and say, this is Palestine. I think we need to change our way of viewing things and, and see that we could have two, two nations living inside one land as long as we respect each other's right to exist together. Now, the, the demographic issue, which... It's understandable why any population fears becoming a minority. I think one of the reasons why there's a lot of Palestinian trauma is because of the demographic switch that occurred on this land. Also, taking into consideration, you know, Jews' very difficult history with uh, with anti-Semitism and multiple Holocausts and and terror that, you know, that we can't expect Jews to give up demographic control willingly. But there are ways to do it that. The you know Palestinians currently living in the West Bank can have uh, w- way more say over their local communities, and Jews will have way more say over their local communities. Right? It, it's it's not just a basic two state or one state paradigm. I think we need to break out of that thinking and try to find something more sophisticated that that solves the, the aspirations of of both people. Um, I'm just putting out there, right? There, there, and and this goes by the name of a federation, right? The whole idea is that there's different states within within the land, and they have localized control. There's many details that that I didn't mention. There's many different um, form of federation solutions. But if anybody is interested in what, what I'm saying, look it up. There's a lot of organizations promoting uh, federations. Uh, regular guest Rudy Rushman often promotes it. Inon Don Quixote from the home often promotes this idea. Yehuda HaKohen promotes this idea. And if you speak to most Palestinians living here, they want a one-state solution. So I, I think we should look in this direction. That being said, I, you know, if any, if one of you two think two states is the way to go, I am happy to hear. 
I, I want to make one last point. Moving back to the homes that Palestinians were kicked out of, I mean, we we cannot create justice by creating another injustice. We, we need to accept that no nobody will be removed from their homes. No more Palestinians, no more Israelis will be removed from their, their homes. Let's start from there. So if there's, a, if there's an Israeli living in a home or in a land that was once occupied by Palestinians, you do not create justice by removing them from their home. home. Instead, perhaps some kind of uh, reparation or compensation uh, of a sort in, in order to, to make things right, right? To heal the pains of the past. But any, any notion of creating an injustice towards one population instead of, in order to create justice for another population, we should just reject that notion outright because it's gonna do nothing to, to progress change. It's just gonna create more, more of the same uh, violence and hate. Yeah. Uh yeah, I was just going to say that, like, I completely agree with that and with that assessment. And I really do. I am a one state person. So like whether if it's like a like a by federation, something like Belgium or something more on the lines of like the United States, where it's like different states and, you know, each one has their own like set, uh, like level of uh, autonomy, but they're still connected by this like federal government. I feel like that's something that's very interesting. Like it's very something that's something that might be very interesting to look into. Uh, that way, like no one really gets upset about like you know Palestinians can live in the Palestinian parts and Jews can live in the Jewish parts, you know. And so, it's, you know, it's it's completely uh, like you know everyone gets what they want. And so I feel like that is something that might be. I just feel like from my position is that I like to argue from points of pragmatism. I just feel like that's the more realistic option of the way things are now. I really think that a two-state solution is not really viable anymore. I really think like, like you got settlements like Ariel, the size of Brooklyn right now, you know what I mean? They're not like, I don't think people are going to like, <laughs> like carry it off and just like, okay, we're going to uh, Netanya or something. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. Like, so I feel like some sort of like by federation is probably more realistic. And so I would love to work more in like that direction as opposed to, you know, uh, like two separate States and, you know, they can just like work differently and, you know, so yeah, that's my perspective. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you making that point, Adar, and I like that we all found the common ground. Like nobody should be kicked out of their home. Um, I brought up a comment that just did. Uh, Jews have the right to live in Judea and Samaria, and Palestinians have the right to live in Yafu, Haifa, and Jerusalem. So yeah, we're, we're with you, uh, well, Michael. I will say this, because that was an interesting point, the way you said it, Adar, and I would imagine that, Muhammad, you agree that, you know, we we should, we want a future where Palestinians can travel anywhere and live anywhere, et cetera, and Israelis vice versa. But you know, I I don't want to also assume that that is you know it sounds great, but at the same time, again, it's I think all this talk about the one state solution, even the solutions that take into account the concept of two separate societies having their own stuff, I think that does overlook at least now in the timeline that we're living in that the war. The resistance against Israel, it's a war, but it's all Palestinians refer to it as resistance, is not really merely just about Israel's actions, and it really never has been. It's about, you know, Israel, and, and even if there was a federation, you know, there was some, you know, much more power given to Palestinian affairs and things like that, you know, it's it's never, you know, at least for the radicals, it's the it's the existence of a Jewish collective that has even a modicum of power. And that's what really pisses off the extremists. And so until we have this 
civil war, I can't think of any other term for it within Palestinian society. I think, it, you know, that could be an okay vision, but it just doesn't make any sense at this point. I think once you have that internal, you know, discussion that we all agreed, you know, the internal discussion among the Palestinians hasn't happened. Once that starts to happen and things move forward, then I think there are all sorts of solutions that might open up, right, about freedom of movement and this and that. But ultimately, the occupation as it exists today will not end unless there is a political settlement, right? So the thrust, and this is what I was asking earlier, the, the nature of the Palestinian cause, it just never takes into account that, that the occupation cannot be ended unilaterally, right? You know, morally or according to international law, right? It has to be a bilateral agreement. And so I think, you know, I, a lot of Israelis want to ease the lives of Palestinians, but they need, they need a, a partner there. They need someone to step up on a political level. And then once that happens, maybe there are some freedom of movement issues that could be addressed. But I yeah. just the last point also about demographics. I'm, I'm, it's frustrating to always hear the demographic argument made or marshaled against Israel. And of course, I'm not denying that there is a demographic concern. But I think, you know, imagine if the birth rates were, were so in favor of the Jews in that land. You, you know, Palestinians, I feel, would, would freak out over the demographic concern. Because, again, Palestinian society is, is pretty homog- homogenous. It's, you know, 99% Arab Muslim around there. And I can't imagine that they would be cool with, again, getting rid of their society and, and just sort of mixing in in its entirety just with a, with a very large Jewish minority. Again, these things are not a science totally, right? We don't know, we can't wave our wand, but just based on how Palestinian society exists today, I think demographics are actually more of a concern for them. Because they don't have the power on the ground, of course, it's not doesn't come out, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's just we, we more than anything should just acknowledge that not a single population in the history of populations has wanted to become a minority when they were once a majority. Right. It's just it, it, it's against our nature. So we, we should just acknowledge that. And, and again, don't, don't confuse this for an appeal to nature fallacy. Just because something's natural doesn't mean it's by default. OK, but when, when you want to create political and sociological change, we need to take into consideration how humans are, like what we react to. So uh, it is worth acknowledging that, you know, we do need to take that into consideration. Mo, you know, Daniel brought up a point that, you know, I think it's fair. And I think many, many Israelis are concerned about, you know, they think that, I I think it's over-exaggerated. I think many Israelis think the majority of Palestinians are extremists. I think they think like the majority just want to kill all Israelis. I don't think it's the majority. From my experience, it's not the majority. But I think it is a legitimate concern that there is a large enough population that would not agree to any form of Israel, not not one state, not two states. And, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about extremism on, on the side of Israel, but let's first address this. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any ideas for how we could address that? Um, I, like I said, like this whole thing comes with generations of trauma of people, uh, mm-hmm. suffering under the hands of like conflict and occupation and so forth. So, um, I really feel like, um, it, it, it's, it's hard, but there needs to, I, I feel for the most part, a lot of the re- resistance against, um, Israel comes from, um, uh, diaspora, diaspora Palestinians who uh, feel like they've been either like disconnected from the land and they're trying to find ways to connect back to the land 
And so they, you know, get a little more active and, you know, rail against Israel and stuff like that. But like for the most part, for Palestinians on the ground, like I feel like they're so sick of this situation from my perspective. And I like lived a relatively upper class life in uh, Ramallah. But for the most part, it's just that they just want to live their lives and like, you know, like, fuck, like, you know, I mean, like work and like feed their kids and go to school and stuff like that. And usually it's just that you're the, the problem is that might induce some people's getting rage is that seeing that, you know, that unemployment is so bad in the area. And every time you walk to go or every time you drive to go see your friend in Nablus or so or something, you, you got to stop by an 18 year old holding an F-16. That's like kind of like giving you a smug look of, oh, uh, yeah, like, listen, look at me. Look who's in charge. And, you know, th- this is just from me. This is like from my personal experience of me, like going back in the summer. I got away with a lot of things because I'm, I'm an American and I speak English properly. People get a little more hesitant to like, you know, uh, like mess with me, basically. But for the most part, for the lives of a Palestinian, I still have a green uh, ID card, a green Hawiya. And so when these people go around and they're, they're driving their day in, day out, is just seeing just like basically having this uh, military force uh, controlling your day to day life. It's really hard for them to try to find a way to be like, oh, maybe they're, you know, they're 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 just like me. They have families, too, and stuff like that. You know, you're kind of stuck in yeah. this mindset where like. You know, your life is just shit nonstop. And I'm sorry for using that language, but like, yeah, you, you, your life is just like so bad nonstop. And the only people that you see and the only people that you can like point is like the are the soldiers that are walking around holding guns and or guns and like telling you, oh, open your trunk. Oh, what do you got? Oh, what, what's up with this? Why are you holding this? You know, and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, someone made a good point about uh, Gaza. The thing is, I'm not really familiar with much of what's happening in Gaza. There, I know that there's a lot of stuff going on, especially with like the military fights and like you know Hamas doing stuff, and then Israel like bombing the crap out of it. And so, like, um, uh, I, I I wouldn't really like to talk much about Gaza. Maybe if someone else has more of an experience with it, it's just that I personally don't have. Um, I, I I sympathize with them in the fact that they are where most of the Palestinian refugees come from. And they have dealt with most of like the blunt trauma of being part of engaged in the conflict. But at the same time, I'm not I'm not as informed as uh, like as a as a person would be. So I'd like rather save it for them. Um, cool. So yeah, yeah, Daniel. I actually wanted to throw a question over your way regarding what uh, Mo said. First of all, Mo, you apologize for saying shit. You don't need to. We allow cursing on this show. Thank you. <laughs> the only thing we don't allow is hate unless it's in the comments, but I might start moderating that better because we've got some nasty, nasty players here today. Yeah, today is uh, one of those spicy uh, comment sections, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just a... Uh, I'm consciously staying away. I, I want to stay in good spirits. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it could only bring you down. Um, so, Mo, you brought up a great point that, you know, a lot of the extremism, you know, no one's born an extremist. No one's born a terrorist. We're, we're all products of our environment. So, you know, when, when we point to extremists, the question is, is not not to it's not a question, but are the natural inclination is to say they're extremists. That's their problem. They need to be dealt with. But the right question to ask is, how do we change an envir- the environment to be an environment in which extremists are not created? So right. it seems like if we can change the environment, 
then we could have much less extremists. Um, so my question to, to you, Daniel, do you think that there, you know, you, you brought up that legitimate concern, but do you think given better living conditions, some, some amount of reconciliation process that we can minimize the amount of extremists on both sides? Because we, we do have a problem with, with extremism in, in Israel. Can we reduce the extremists on both sides where we could have, have a, a solution? Yeah, great question. I, you know, I think better living conditions is, is, should always be on the table and should always be the first consideration where, of course, you know, security is, is not compromised. I think it goes for any society. And I think Israel has, to a very large extent, um, made tremendous efforts to do that in very trying circumstances. I, you know, if you follow like the, the COGAT, you know, the coordinator, I don't have to tell you, Adar, coordinator for government, you know, uh, uh, activities in the territories. I mean, it's just daily, the, you know, how they try to improve Palestinian lives. Now, as as Muhammad was telling me about the sort of like anecdotal and, and he's gone through it, like the checkpoints and all that, this is like the unfortunate, sometimes cold part of hearing those stories as someone who is an Israel supporter and, and an advocate. And it just feels like when I, when I respond to that, giving the political response, well, you know, maybe that wouldn't happen if X, Y, Z, you know, I feel like hollow inside, right? Because I don't want that to be the response, you know, but at the same time, I really don't know any better response. I mean, I could say, I'm like, sorry that you had to experience that. That's horrible. Because, you know, at the end of the day, there are just people going about their lives and they shouldn't have to suffer for the bad apples in their own society. Um, But going back to your, going back to your point, I mean, but understanding that political aspect, I think, again, going back to my initial point, it's so central, I think, and it's, I know it's hard, but it has to be thought about on the Palestinian side, completely understand that it's not easy, because, how you know, at the checkpoint, you're not going to expect an 18-year-old Israeli with a newsy or whatever gun he's holding to say, you know, let's talk, I'm 16, you know, whatever, let's, let's talk, <laughs> you know, if only your leadership did this, or if only, you know, like, right. you know, you're not going to get that. And also, why would, why would the Palestinian listen to that guy? You know, that's right. why it has to happen internally. And again, very unfortunate because then you might have this scenario where you have moderates in the Palestinian areas who say, you know, try to make the case to those on the fence or the extremists who say, look, there's, th- these are political situations, political problems we can, we can iron out, we can, work, we can work with the Israelis, and they might want to have a little bit of, of some assets with them, right? Some sort of like backup to say, well, well, if we do it, or look, look how Israel is playing ball with us now. They're giving us this much land for development, they're opening these things up, et cetera, the economy's better. I think the problem is it's a fine line. When you, when you said Adar, like better living conditions, it's, you know, sometimes that could be a very politicized term as well. Like, should we get grant Palestinians more land in Area C, for instance? Is that humanitarian? Is that political, right? There's like a little bit of like a fine line with that. Some Palestinians would say, you know, or supporters would say, yeah, right. yes. So, yeah. But, yeah, well, but the bottom line is I think better living, I don't think better living conditions would be the thrust of this um, evolution within Palestinian society. And it's unfortunate because maybe that would be some cachet that the, that the moderates would, could use to say, look, look, we've gotten these benefits. But I think it just, so, I think there's a lot of history there that, that counteracts that. I, I hear you. And, and first, I just want to say that, you know, it's, you know, first of all, I commend you for acknowledging that, it, you know, you don't want to give a hollow response. And, and you're, you're right that, Empathy is important to, to, you know, reconciliation and just healing, healing, you know, the wounds of the, 
of the past hundred years. So giving a purely political response when someone's talking about their struggle doesn't do much to, to progress, you know, dialogue and, and unity between those people. But I, I do think that there's a lot that Israel does that contributes to the radicalization of the Palestinians that are not ap- absolutely essential to Israeli security. So, and, and, many, and many, many Israelis are going to d- disagree with me here because they support this stuff for political or ideological reasons. But I look at it, it's like what Israel has the, what Israel has the right to do, we, we, ha- we have a piece of land where, where we are free and have self-determined on. We have the right to keep ourselves safe, but there's a lot that we do that does aid in the radicalization of the Palestinians that we don't have to. So one, we're continuing to build settlements. The way Palestinians view building of settlements is continued theft of land. And I, I, I really don't care much if you say that's not their land, that's our land. Well, in their eyes, it's their land and not your land. And in building, you aid in the radicalization. It, may, it, it creates increased despair, despair, you know, is what gets people to often act violently and, and, and you know, leads to extremism. So what one is building, pal- uh, building more settlements. But building more settlements, it's not just bu- building settlements that increases military presence. And we have increased military presence. It's more interactions between the Israeli military and the Palestinians. And, and those interactions are not friendly ones. It's often someone in a place of authority speaking to someone not as an equal, and again, we were talking about innate reaction to things. Well, people have a very negative innate reaction to having authority that they do not see as their own, right? No population is happy being um, governed by other people. So again, um, settlements increase, make them feel like their land's being taken. That increases military presence, which also um, gives them more bad interactions with Israelis, adds to their oppression. In addition to that, the soldiers that are in the West Bank guarding are not trained well enough to be doing that job. Um, they, there are many, many instances of abuse. It's, it's rampant. And again, people deflect and say, yeah, well, anytime you have a w- war, you're going to have abuse. Yeah, but again, that doesn't make it right. So Israeli soldiers can, can abuse Palestinians, whether it's being too aggressive with them, whether it's even stealing stuff from them when they do home searches. Um, whether it's humiliating them at checkpoints. Very rarely are Israelis punished for doing this, right? So that's that's a very obvious policy we can do. We can change the change the culture and, and start to discipline soldiers who abuse their power. Uh, in addition to that, we could just invest immense resources into, into some kind of cross-border dialogue. I know this is challenging because there's a very strong anti-normalization movement uh, amongst Palestinians, but at, at least the, fir- the first thing is ending settlements and, um, and holding soldiers accountable for their abuse are two things that I think currently cause immense pain to the Palestinians, which, which we could just, you know, we, we could end if, if we decided to. No, I completely agree with Aldor. I feel like that's, yeah. I, I, you know, I would definitely agree on, on one of your points about holding soldiers accountable for, for their abuse. And I think there are times where should go without saying, sometimes there are things that happen in the field that don't get reported on and, and you know, don't always make the pages of Haaretz. And we don't, you know, of course, there are those that do. And we know about them. We say, look how how great, you know, self-policing Israel can be. 
But of course, I think there's always improvements. I think there's a lot to commend Israel for that, but there's also a lot of improvements. I know Israelis take that very seriously. Um, and, you know, you served. You know, I didn't, I haven't served. So, I mean, the Israelis I've spoken to and I know very personally, they take a lot of pride in trying to do the best job they can in, in impossible circumstances. Uh, I'll just, I want to address a couple of things. I, you know, I, I don't want to get caught up with, with terminology, but even the term oppression, mm-hmm. I, I very strongly disagree that what Israel's doing is, is oppression. Um, and I know you, you kind of made the case earlier that, you know, things are, are needlessly hard on Palestinians. And I think that would serve a definition of oppression, right? If there's a needlessness to hardship. Um, I, I, you know, I disagree. Um, I think there are there are individual cases, but I think that's also loaded language. And I don't know. I know we want to connect with Palestinians at the same time. I think that is um, very just very loaded and, and I think untrue to a large extent because I think intentions matter uh, when it comes to oppression. So, yes, there are feelings like I could feel oppressed. But at the same time, I think intentions and so I'm I, OK, I'm I'm partially with you here. I, I definitely agree. It's a loaded term and, and it does trigger many people. But is oppression ever is the intention ever oppression? It's it's normally like the, it's it's a result of something else. Right. It's it's. Yeah, I was going to say so. Yeah, go ahead, Daniel, if you want to finish your thought. Um, I think I think there could be. Yeah. Like just to play around with that. I think there could be policies that an entity never intentioned that happen to adversely affect the population uh, unnecessarily. And I think it, you know, if, if they stop that, then I guess, you know, the oppression ends. I do think intent is a large part of it. Um, I, of course, I do think Palestinians are, experience hardship. Um, and we could also, we could always go down the list of things that Israel may or may not be able to do better. But ultimately, why people are so against that term is because, you know, you have one, one player to this conflict that, basically leverages the Palestinian population to their political advantage, right? Like, so, so resistance, right? The militant resistance definitely takes into account that the response will be borne by regular Palestinians. And, and this unfortunately is, is a very dark, cold calculus that they've made over the last few decades. So I think that does factor into whether I think these hardships are a product of oppression. Um, not again, not to say that there can't be individual circumstances that might warrant better treatment, but I think there's a there's a bigger dynamic at play than just simply saying what Israel's doing is oppression. I, I understand what you're trying to say, Daniel, but at the same time, I feel like it's just baked into the situation where you have one ethnic group policing and monitoring another ethnic group, and at the same time, like if I am um, if I'm going to like this happened to me actually last summer where I was going to um, I was visiting my friend in Nablus, and I came we came but we're driving back. And uh, they stopped me, me and three of my friends. You can imagine the picture. It's four guys driving at 2 a.m. in the morning. All of us got like beards and stuff driving at the a.m. And we got we got stopped in front of the settlement of um, Shiloh. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one. And yeah, and the, we uh, got held up and I was the one driving, ended up being pulled out of the car. They were saying, OK, like patting me down and stuff. And I, I can see that they're very serious about their job. They want to make sure that like I wasn't doing anything like I didn't have anything and stuff like that. But at the same time, I don't see, like, I can hardly picture, me, like, me, I'm there for the summer, I'm there for break, they can pat me down, whatever, I'm going to New York after this, I don't give a fuck. But someone that's, like, living there, someone that's living there, and they have to experience that the whole time, do you, like, built over the fact that they can't get a job, they can't do anything, and they can't, they're stuck over here, they can't, their family is going through with hardship, and they're just sitting there, like, they're not going to go there and be like, oh, they're, they're not going to sit there and, like, oh, yeah, you know, this is built, this is part of some 
greater um, political dynamic that's hard to address right now. And one day we'll find peace and stuff. Like at that moment, they're like, fuck, this guy, he thinks he's better than me because he has a gun and he's, he's in my land, basically. You know what I mean? And so it's hard. It's, 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 a, it's a hard thing. And the thing is, like, if you can look at, like, even, like, things that they teach you in undergrad, like, you know, the Stanford prison experiment, the fact that you just give people, like, the illusion of authority and then they just start, like, running around saying, like, yes, like, I am the, I'm the arbitrator of justice in this area. I will teach them. I'll, I'll bring justice and make sure keep everybody safe and stuff. And so just by like the just by the merit of having like all this power put on you, especially when you're a young dude, like if you're an 18 year old kid, I would probably behave exactly the same way. You know, you, you're, you're going to go on. Some, you're bound to go on some power trip that's going to get somebody hurt in the end. Right. I, that's an interesting point. I, and I kind of could empathize with you on that. Totally. Uh, there's no there's no good response to that. Um, I just wanted to just say something about the settlements because I I agree, Adar, that there are things that Israel does that do go beyond security. And I, I'm actually tired of that argument that's sometimes made that everything Israel does in, in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank is, is security, right? Because that's not right. true. Not, not true. true. And, and you know, but some of it is is also not simply just to, you know, bust the collective chops of Palestinians. I mean, there's two, there's two ways I look at it. One is you have to factor in um, how Israel now sees after three decades Palestinian, the, the, the movement, right? Um, and again, that fine line between, you know, there are lands in the West Bank that we might say, like, you know, are Israeli, Palestinian, but, you know, Israel doesn't see this anymore as, you know, the, playing the, the two-state game has cost Israel dearly, right? In blood and 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 just in diplomacy and, and their rights. And so I, I see a lot of this as Israel reasserting their rights. And again, not, I'm not, talking about every last little bit of land that's taken by Israel, right? But it is a question also of rights. If, as long as they don't kick out Palestinians from, from those lands, and if those lands are, and those lands are vacant, and again, the overall percentage of settlement area is very small. I get that where they are, some of them makes, you know, you said there, there's a military presence that comes along, right? But I do see one uh, settlement serving as a pressure tactic and sort of Israel's way of saying, we're not gonna play this, you know, we're not retired of your war. Uh, and there's been proof, too, that when Israel, um, you know, Israel settlements have brought the Palestinians to the table. I mean, there's, there's this famous line by the Palestinian mayor of Bethlehem at, at the start of the, the Madrid peace conference in 91, where he told a WAPO reporter, he says, you know, um, they asked him, what do you think of the settlements? And he's like, well, settlements are the reason we're here. We realize that Israel can just build anywhere with impunity. We have nothing. We can't do anything about it. The only thing we can do is, is, is actually negotiate our way out of this. And of course, that led to Oslo, which was a big, you know, was was fake. But at the same time, there was there was a real impetus, right? There was a real pressure that was put to bear. And again, I, I just have to return to the politics. I think once the politics can can start to reform, these quality of life issues will completely go away. I mean, not completely. Yeah. Always going to be radicals, right? There's always going to be attacks. I, I, absolutely, but like I, I, the reason why I brought that up, and just like my experience, like I'm telling you, my experience is virtually nothing negligible to what other Palestinians go through throughout their lives. It's just that like, so next time you see a Palestinian, like so filled with, I guess, passion or rage against Israel and like the settlement in Israel, at least like people would have an understanding of where they're coming from. And it's not just like, Oh man, like these guys must really hate Jews, you know, like they, they just like have nothing else better to do in their life. You know, it's like, there's something, there's something more or something more ingrained and, and, uh, sad, like permeating through through the, the the hearts and minds of people. Like most of the yeah yeah. Go ahead. 
No, I think those experiences um, can can exist on their own and breathe on their own and and cause despair and rage. And I think oftentimes they also, uh, those experiences, uh, unfortunately, add to a pre-existing you know, ethos within Palestinian society. Again, I'm not Palestinian. I don't live there. You know, I get the usual Palestinian media watch emails and all that, and I, I can research all that stuff. But a lot of it is true. And, and, you know, again, I don't know how much it permeates society, but there is a large culture of resistance. I would say most Palestinian youth do not want to do that. They don't want to throw their lives away. But there is a significant number that that do, that take pride in that. And, and that's a problem. And I think those experiences validate what they hear among their elders. And that's that's a serious problem. I mean, I, I you're right. I, there's a human element to this, right? No one's born to hate, right? And, and, uh, and you know, the the younger Palestinians support resistance at a higher rate than the older Palestinians, which again l- leads me to believe that it does have something to do with increased d- despair. And you know, uh, recent polling showed that only seven percent of Palestinians think peace will be attained within the next hundred years. Something crazy like that, right? 7%. So you don't think that's an increase in, in social media in the last decade or so and, and the Palestinian exposure to their radical messaging. I think that has a lot to do with the peace process and not to say everything was honky dory before Oslo, but there was a lot more interaction. And yeah, no, I, I say that that has that that's, that's a good point that social media might play play into that as well, but it's not hard to see why, you know, um, the more checkpoints you need to wait at to, to get to school, the more bad interactions you have with Israelis are just going to lead you to, to, to view, you know, Israel in a certain way and, and think that the only solution, you know, is, is through resistance and not, and not dialogue. But, but you're right. I'm, I, I, you know, we, we can't, we probably cannot attribute, attribute the radicalization to just one thing. And we, we often try to attribute to what we want it to be to strengthen our argument. But um, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. It, that. That would be an interesting conversation to have. So we, we are we are going on an hour and a half now. I, I do want to um, take it to questions. So guests, if you have any questions, not guests, chat. If you have any questions, let's hear them. And again, if you if you like our guests, which I like very much, I think this was actually one of the most productive and insightful conversations we've had. Um, there's a few points were, were made that I need to reflect on my, myself deeply in order to better understand them. Um, so if you want to get in touch with them, their contact information is in the description. If you ha- And guys, I want to point uh, Daniel and, and Mo, you know, testament to you guys doing a great job is that we have 23 upvotes, two downvotes. It's pretty, that's a pretty damn good ratio for the most controversial topic, potentially in the history of, of existence, right? So uh, you know, excellent work. Um, I'm, I'm going to give a, a, sh- a shout out to Ian Lev. He's a regular guest who has an obsession with, oh, what, why to cut off? He goes, are either of these two vegans? Ian hates vegans. Somehow he brings anti-veganism into every discussion I've ever, um, I've ever been with him, which is kind of funny because all a vegan is, is saying let's ha- harm less animals. I mean, not such a radical position if you think about it. Let's see questions coming in. I saw one earlier. And guys, thank you all so much, so much for coming. Just know, you know, our after party is in the Discord channel. If you want to get invited to the Discord, go to Patreon, link in description, and you can get invited to Discord. This is from, I'm trying to see, I'm, I'm assuming this is Michael. 
I don't know why. It's just the double L makes me think it's not Michael and it's Michael. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Michael, Michael, Rosenthal, thank you. Do Daniel or, or Muhammad have any ideas of policies that can make the situation better for both populations? So we, we touched on this briefly. And I, I, I do want, let's do, you know, one minute responses just because I want to I want to get to some more. Go ahead. Uh, specific policy decisions. I feel like for the most part, I feel like um, recently, I, I don't know if uh, Israel did it just to spite the PA or so or something, but they allowed a lot of like Palestinians to go um, like cross the border, like without like the permission slips or not permission slips. It's uh, we call them Tosari. I don't know what they're called in English. The, in Hebrew, the, 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 I don't know the English. They, like, like day passes, something like that. Yeah, whatever. It's like the day passes, and they, they just like I don't know if it's just to spite the PA, say like, look, like we don't need you. You can just like you can just go. Like, we'll just let them go through this like little hole in the fence or something. And so they just ended up going, and like you know, people came back, and I don't know. In my mind, I thought it was just like trying to like the way the Israeli government can like test the waters and see like how things would be, and like maybe it's like it won't be such a horrible thing to like let Palestinians move free- freely, and so. um you know, it's I I feel like that was an interesting thing that they did. I just feel like, like I'm telling you, I lived nine years in like Ramallah. The only Israelis, the only Israelis I've seen were what do you call our soldiers? I don't know any. I didn't know where the hero. I only saw people like with the green helmets walking around between the entrance of the 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 what is it Road 60? The yeah Route 60. Those are the only people I've seen. So like I I didn't actually meet Jews until I came to New York. You know, and then like I'm like oh like look they're actually human just like me. You know, and so I feel like more of interaction between more pe- different peoples would probably be, um, yeah, a permit. Yeah, thank you. That was that's what's called a permit. <laughs> and so, yeah, having that sort of uh, interaction, more interaction, probably like lesson, because you can tell, like even like from Arabs that the Arabs that seem to be the most chill with Israelis are the ones that work settlements or work inside is uh, work inside Israel. And I feel like that that is not from nothing. It's because they're like, oh, okay, they're just people too, you know, and like. Same thing with Israelis. They'll see a they'll see a Palestinian. They'll they'll think like, oh, like this person has a mom and a dad that they really love to love and care about. So do I. Maybe we can like work something out, and you know, and so like I don't know. I feel like that, that's just like small things that someone can do. Big policies. I don't know. It's not my field. Like <laughs> I'm I'm going to be an elementary school teacher. I'm not so sure about those uh, big like policy um, policy proposals. But maybe Daniel could help you answer that. Yeah. There's no. Um you know, uh, silver bullet with the, uh, maybe that's the wrong, uh, metaphor, um, to, you know, for, to, for, for policy proposals. I, I, you know, I've already expressed that, um, less friction will come from less resistance, you know, less militant resistance, which also includes, you know, popular resistance as it's coined, which is, can be, can include, you know, nonviolent protests, but, but even some of those are really about, you know, creating friction and documenting supposed Israeli heavy handed responses. And I think some of those things are ultimately, um, need to be um, reversed. You know, the concept of, of resistance, I think, even if it's really just resisting the occupation, which I think is rare because it's really ultimately more fundamental about resisting Israel, I, I think those um, are actually detrimental because I think they're negative interactions. I, I agree with you. I think there should be more positive interactions. I think there should be Palestinians going into Israel and working in, in Israeli areas in Judea Samaria. And I think that happens a lot. You know, like Randy Levy, the supermarket chain that's talked about a bunch as like this model of cooperation. You have a lot of Arabs working there and, and it's, they're not alone. I think Israelis, Israel's presence in, in the territories has had positive um, interactions too. Of course, there's negative as well, but 
I think, yeah, I think that is a huge part of this. So I agree with you on that. I do think, I'm going to go back to that point, what's going to affect policy ultimately is Palestinian society changing. And, um, and I think once Palestinian society starts to change, you're going to see that's the real power. I think they have a power for peace that they're not leveraging. And I don't think they're close to leveraging, but you'll see Israel is easily moved, would be easily moved by Palestinian, a, a conversation that they would have about this, right? Like, they, they already follow what they say to each other all the time, right? Palestinians see what Israelis say, vice versa. If that happens, I think you would see some major shift in in how benevolent Israel could be in terms of the political level and, and withdrawing and things like that. Um, even, even things that are pre-developing a, a possible state, right? I think Israel has shown that it is moved by its own people. And once Israeli people see that Palestinians are, are having this conversation, that would be ultimately beneficial so 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 daniel you know a little follow-up don't you i I think my concern with that is it you know it's it's setting a very high barrier to entry to say you know that you know palestinian uh society (laughs) it will solve everything but in order for society to change you know you say that to an individual they're like okay i can't change my society i could maybe change myself but it, it's like it, it's not a message that that gives people like in an understanding of what exactly they need to do. And it's like, you know, yeah, right. Exactly. And, you know, our, our culture is often a result of our environment. So it's like I, and, and again, I'm I often talk about societal change. So I'm, I, I am with you to an extent because me as an individual, I, I want to impact society. But it seems like policy is like a top-down approach. Society is a bottom-up approach. So I feel like we need to take it for, from both. But I, I think that, y- you know. Politics, you're, you're, politics is local, right? I mean, was it, oh, politics is global, they say, but it's also local. And I, yeah, I don't want to interrupt you, but I just yeah. think that it, it would be thinking outside the box. I don't think it's thinking outside the box to say that, you know, Palestinian civil society could start to develop NGOs and other organizations that could push back right. a little bit on some of the, and some of the rejection. And I think that's definitely not an overnight thing. Um, and it's going to be dangerous, but I think there's no other choice. I think that's the only option for them to move forward. But yeah, I just, uh, I just wanted to say like one thing, like really quickly is that also like, you might also need to take into consideration of like how it looks for my position, like me going to, as a Palestinian to another Palestinian say like, you know what really the solution to the problem is we just got to stop, you know, just kind of, don't do anything about it, you know, just chill out, you know, and just go to school, forget about it. That, that's not, that, not what the, the problem is, not what it implies physically, it's what implies psychologically. It's just saying like, oh, just capitulate, you know, just bend the knee, accept defeat, you're a loser. Now these are like, you know, so it's like, it's like, it's, it's not gonna, it's not a good look for like, it's not a good look that Palestinians want to like take or even want to like, you know, like propose to other Palestinians just say like, oh, you know, this whole like, all this fighting that you guys have been doing, it's all for naught. Like, it's nothing. Like, it's worthless. Don't just like completely stop, sit down, go home. You know, that's why the thing is, it's like there needs to be like a much greater reconciliation. But honestly, it's a long discussion. We can probably talk about this for like five hours, maybe. Yeah. That was a huge point. I'm not going to uh, talk about it. But that, what you just said is, what is all this, you know, all the fighting we've done for, for decades, what has it been for? And that's, I think that's the biggest obstacle, right? Like, has this right. been me? Have we had, have we kept our, our, children in refugee camps for, for decades, all for, for naught. Like, it seems like, how would that, you know, how would you move? No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, I, I'll add some uh, policy 
changes that I think can can make a difference. And some of them may take a generation. And what I'm going to say uh, is relevant mostly to both sides. Teach. I'm going to speak as if I'm speaking to Israelis. Okay. Teach Israelis Arabic in school from the time they're young. Every Israeli should know Arabic, Palestinian Arabic. We need to know how to communicate with their neighbors. Teach Israelis Palestinian history. Teach them about the Nakba. Teach them about the Palestinian struggle. And have the, the, our Zionist teachings, our narrative, our Jewish narrative needs to encompass the Palestinian narrative. We, 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 we need to find a way to step out of, the, out of this two conflicting narratives. And I think if we teach children from a young age that, look, our history is complex. A lot of bad things happen to one another. But this is a unified narrative that really understands both people. I think that will create a population that is much more empathetic and understanding of the other side, which gets the ground ready for peace to be made, right? It seems like many solutions can't even be solved because there's so much dis, um, distrust between between both populations. Um, the, the other one I would say, I think, you know, uh, soldiers do need to be held accountable for their actions. They're, if you look at military conduct, like what they teach you, they tell you that abuse is unacceptable. But the reality on the ground is that, you know, when abuse occurs, people turn a blind eye. And this isn't only from the 18-year-old soldiers. It's also from, from the, the commanders as well. I've seen it with my own two eyes. Many of my friends share the same stories. Right. I, I, and again, but ju- ju- just to make it clear, it's nowhere near as bad as what Palestinian, some Palestinian media outlets make it seem like. It's not like we're going into homes and killing babies, right? There's that ob- obvious over-exaggeration. That's not what's happening. But there's way more abuse that that way more abuse is happening that should happen, and it needs to be addressed. No, I totally agree. Yeah, the, the, those are two areas of policy that I think uh, should probably change. Do I have any more? No, there no. Was yeah. By the way, yes, learning Arabic—it yeah. seems so basic, but you're right. It's it's like that's not not a solution I've heard really commonly. I think that's yeah. it's so basic and beautiful. It's it's speak the same language absolutely absolutely i i tried my best like for the last year i tried <laughs> for a mistake i tried learning hebrew and i still do like anyway the but like still like i'm like you know like, i learned hebrew for nothing i'm like oh it's so similar to arabic and all, all this stuff and it's like super nice and i felt like it really like uh, helped me so like now next time like usually instead of the soldier trying to talk to me in like broken english i can talk to them in broken hebrew and so like i feel like it, it, it gives them the sort of um uh, more leniency saying, oh, this guy, look, he's Arab, he's trying to learn the language. You know, I, I always used to crack the same joke and saying that, like, oh, you know, uh, New York is the land of Israel, time. you know, it's the second, it's the land of Israel part two. And then, you know, and the, I get a couple chuckles from here and there. And, you know, from then on, then on you can see that they're like, um, there, there's something that goes on saying, oh, like, look at this guy, he's nice. And, like, you know, and so, like, you know, that, that's like how I try to do my, my part. But there's like, some, someone keeps on asking this question in the chat. And they're asking me if I, like, identify as a Canaanite or a Venetian or something. Yeah, I don't know. Let, let me bring that up. Let me, I just want to make one comment because uh, Jordan Walter, who is also a regular guest and a Patreon supporter, Jordan, I'm going to send you the, the discord link after this. I know you haven't gotten it yet. I'm going to send it. Thank you for joining almost every week. Israel and Palestine should legalize weed. True. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Both sides can mellow out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
for, for, from the sake of being able to a mellow out, but just liberty perspective, you know, a, a country that tells you what you can and can't smoke, it's like you know, shut up and deal with other stuff. Don't tell us what we could do. We're right. not to. And and very rarely does someone get high and start fighting with people. You know, you don't get high and and God and start fighting. Alcohol does that, not weed. So I'm with you. We're with you. I think that's one of the greatest areas of consensus here. Uh, let's bring up that Canaanite question. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Hold up. If anybody wants to intern for the great debate, I'm always looking for more interns. And one of the things, one of the tasks I need for the interns is to manage the comment section. Damn, where's that Canaanite uh, question? Can we leave those poor Canaanites alone? Jeez. <laughs> okay, so I'll try to repeat the question. You know, they were asking is, uh, how, what do you view as uh, Palestinian identity? Is it, is it Canaanite? Is it Phoenician? Is it Arab? Yeah, I, I feel like that question comes up a lot. And I really, and like from the bottom of my heart, I really think it's a really weird question because it's trying to like, it's always trying to be like, trying to get a leg up over one another saying like, oh, oh, so Jews claim descendants from the Hasmonean kingdom. Well, actually I'm a Canaanite that traces my back farther back than that. And so it's just weird. Like, do like Palestinians have Canaanite ancestry? Yeah, probably for the most part. Like you can tell just from like physical appearances, like I don't really look like a person that's from Yemen or I really don't look like a person that's from, Saudi Arabia or stuff. And, you know, maybe there's some admixture, but just identifying for the most part as, uh, as Palestinians exist today, we identify as Arabs, regardless of what that means. Like, doesn't mean that we came from Arabia. doesn't mean that we just speak Arabic, like all this sort of like connotations. I identify as a Palestinian Arab. I don't really care about these old ethnic groups that don't exist anymore. I know a lot of like uh, Lebanese people like try to identify as Phoenicians to kind of separate themselves from this Arab identity because they see it as something regret, uh, like something bad or something. And I think, honestly, I just think it's just like a sort of self-hatred. It's just like, there's nothing wrong with being Arab. You can be Arab and like be Palestinian or have like any sort of identity that like that you belong to. So yeah, like I just wanted to address that. I feel like trying to like trace your lineage back to some old ancient people, like that doesn't really exist. We don't even know what they ate, what they believed in, what, like what they used to do for fun. Just trying to like hit your tent to that when where it's just, it kind of seems like a safe bet because you know, they don't got Canaanites. They're cool. You know, they don't, nothing's happening with them. You know, they're, they're, they, they're just, they live in the past. They did their thing and now they're gone. I just think it's just an escape go to like avoid uh, the, the problems now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I think uh, the whole conversation of we were here first, we were here first, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of comes like this. It's like, you know, Jews return and say, you know, we were here 2000 years ago. We were here first. Which, which I think it's might be relevant for for conversation, but it's it doesn't justify injustices, right? So it's not like we get to kick people out of their land because we were here first. So yeah. it, it's almost like there's this like race for who was here first. So then, as you mentioned, Palestinians say, "No, we were Canaanites. We were here even before the Jews." And you know, we we, we could argue over indigeneity and and who was here first forever. And there might be certain circles where it's a relevant conversation, but okay, I, I actually don't care who was here first. What I care about is that we're both living here on the same land. Yeah, we need to make yeah, it we're work. Here now. That's important. Coming here, coming, coming here first, or, or or whatever your history is, doesn't grant you more rights. What grants, what should grant you your rights is that you're a human being, and and you know we should we should work from from that premise. A human being living on a land, right? D doesn't matter your ethnicity. You should you should 
have the same rights. So I don't even see it so much of a relevant conversation. Um, for historical purposes, it may be interesting. I, yeah. I think a lot of that conversation is fueled by, and this is where there's a little imbalance. Of course, you're going to find Zionists who say, you know, all the Arabs came from somewhere else and there were no Arabs living there, all that. Of course, I, that, I think that's a very minority view. <laughs> Every single one of us came from Saudi Arabia. Every single one of us. <laughs> Straw man argument out of that. I mean, they might say most or, right, they. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard it all, sure. Um, you know, we, we could talk about migrations and all that till, you know, tomorrow. But I think I think you're right. I think it, it's it's fooled by a little bit of a defensiveness and an understandable defensiveness for because, you know, Israel is called illegitimate. It's been called illegitimate for a while. It's been called European. So, of course, there is a bit of a race, as you said, just to reassert that, no, 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 we're, we're not. You know, we, we actually go back. It's like, you know, it's sort of maybe a little bit of an overcorrect, you know, this whole thing where you're like, no, for yeah. you, you know, but. Right. Truth and all that, but I, I do think it's a response to, to to that sort of denial. Yeah, it's like it's like me, like just saying, like if like I go back to some mountain in Kenya and say, like, oh, you know, my ancestors came from over here, so this is mine. I'm actually identified. Yeah, I think that's an apt comparison because I mean that I, you know it, it's yeah we all came from the Great Rift Valley, you know, in Africa, you know, going back far enough. But I think you know Jewish identity and and, and you know our our whole being really came from that land and, and it's just inexorably no no absolutely I absolutely understand like the Jewish connection to the to, to the land and that sort of thing but it's just that like I, I just feel like the argument of using saying like oh someone that kind of relates to me back in the day sort of like you know like that, that like lived there at some point so therefore I have some sort of connection to it I think I think that's a like like a like a, a weird argument to make, like depending on like how long it's a very complicated issue. Like I understand that, but at the same time, it's just that like I feel like we should look at things as how as how they are now. And the fact is, Jews, Palestinians, Arabs, Samaritans, Druze live over in the land right now. And so, how do we deal with that? We're not like Adar used to say a lot. Like you're not going to convince anybody that like actually I have a special connection to this land that's way different than yours. You know. And so, like, you got to work around, like, work around, like, what's happening now and, like, kind of avoid all that, like, mumbo jumbo from the past. I want to pull up one last thing. And, Nardine, thank you. You've been here since the beginning. This was a sham debate. I didn't hear a debate. So, the reason I call this a debate is because if I didn't call it a debate, less people would click and watch. Yeah, I'm giving up my, my secret to get clicks because people like watching other people fight. I personally see no reason to do content, at least for me, my own personal content, if it's not gonna be productive. And I think there's enough people fighting on social media with nothing nothing resolved. That's not what I wanna be doing on this channel. So the reason it's not a debate, it's not a debate, it's a great debate. And what makes this debate great is that it's not two sides fighting with one another, it's two sides coming to get together to find common ground. So I'm sorry my Tricky wording led you here. Um, this was pretty debatey to me. I mean, not debate doesn't have to be negative. I mean, it could just be. Yeah, you know, we, don't, we don't have to be at each other's necks and like scream at each other. Like, you know? it, it, right, exactly. It, it is. It, it is a productive flow of ideas where all sides respect one another. I, I, I think you know, Nerdine. May, maybe I'm mistaken, and you know, I, I am happy you're here. I know, you know, I was you know, maybe I came off a little harsh, but I, I hope you return because these are the productive conversations. This is part of solving the conflict. It's not about, you know, those taglines, those taglines that uh, journalists and politicians make. It's not about owning the other side. That that doesn't, 
You know, we, we have that everywhere. That, that does nothing. This is a different platform. We're here to find common ground. We're here to learn new things. So I hope you come back. But if not, you know, best of luck to you where, wherever you venture to, my friend. Um, let's see. Do we want to do anything else? No, I, I, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, um, f final, final words for the guests. Um, any, anything you'd like to leave us with? Uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll say this was a, a very um, profound experience for me. I, I think about this issue a lot. You know, the amount of times I actually type out the word Palestinian is like astronomical. But then thinking about it, I actually don't speak to many Palestinians. It's, it's just weird. You know, I, I so I, I, you know, sometimes I have to humble myself, right? Like I don't, a lot of what I'm going on is just research, right? And, and you know, looking into things on my own. And it's always, I think it's just so helpful to talk to actual Palestinians and, and find out their thoughts. And, and, you know, yeah, we can predict, I, I could have predicted some of the things that I heard today. At the same time, there were some new, new things and, and it's just great to put a face, put a human being behind some of these ideas. And it really does humanize the situation. And it, you know, um, I just, I'm, I'm humbled by that. I hope we can continue the dialogue. I really do think these dialogues matter. I think, um, you know, people power, we're, we're all talking about, you know, the power of the people now and what we can do to affect change. I, I just totally think that, you know, we can, we can transform the politics today. Again, I hate to use that P word, the politics, but I do think that ultimately does affect things on the ground. And, and that's, you know, it's power. Politics is power. And I think power to the people is ultimately us taking, taking the reins from the failed policies of the past. And I think through the people, the policies will, will ultimately change. And I think we, we will have peace one day, hopefully. So I, I really appreciate your, your time, Mohammed and, and Adar. Thank you so much for, for setting this up. And for thank you. Amen, brother. It was a pleasure. I, I put a yeah. quote at the bottom of the screen that I think just kind of sums up what we're trying to do. Muhammad. Yes. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm glad that you have me on. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. A lot of people that I talked to before going on didn't want me to go on. They thought this was a very bad move and thought this was normalization and all this sort of stuff, you know, negative connotations. But I felt like it's, uh, I feel like it's important to just like have my experience put out there. Just my like sort of thought process. I'm by no means an expert of any of the conflict. I just, I'm, for more or less a political hobbyist or a person that, you know, had influence, was born there and lived through some parts of like the Palestinian experience. So I felt like it was my, my duty to just like share my experience out there. Whoever wants to listen, they can listen to it. And um, I really appreciate, even though like, you know, we probably mean Daniel still disagree on a lot of things. I still appreciate that we can still have a, a conversation like this without uh, being too uh, like um, having so much animosity between us. And I think this is if this is a good uh, this is a good um, movement for like trying to bring like people together and trying to have these discussions uh, talked about. Because if we're if people, Palestinians only talk to Palestinians and Israelis only talk to Israelis, no one will get to learn what the other person thinks. And you're just sitting there in your room, like in your echo chamber, not really. Uh, not really like advancing or changing your opinions on anything because yet no one's challenged you on anything. So yeah, I really appreciate you, Adar and uh, Danielle for uh, having me.
Thank you both, Brother Daniel, Brother Muhammad. Can we get a, a, a quick word in on, on the organizations that I... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. shout out. Yeah, sure. um, yeah shout out to, to Fuel for Truth. Um, you know, it's one of two amazing organizations I, I work for. Um, uh, Fuel for Truth is organized, um, or it's geared towards young professionals. And we have what's called a boot camp program, which is in LA, New York, other cities around the country, where we offer in-depth education on Israel and the conflict and how to navigate those, those conversations. Um, second organization is, is called Club Z, um, the Zionism for Teens. It's an organization that's geared towards mostly high school students. And through our, our institute, um, which is in New York, the Bay Area, LA, Charlotte, we educate Jewish uh, teens on their heritage, on Zionism, Israel, the conflict. And just, I'll just say with, with teens facing anti-Zionists, hey, uh, not just on campus, but even increasingly in high school, um, it, it's scary out there. And, and we do equip our teens with the knowledge and the confidence and the pride that, that they need to understand their history and, and also to, to push back on some of that and have productive dialogues um, like this. So um, yeah, again, I, I really appreciate uh, the forum you provide. And um, it's 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 never like a piece of cake. It's always going to you know be something that you don't agree with. But I think that's what makes it worthwhile. I'm with you. Thank you guys so much. And you know um, I'd love to have you both on. Um, to those joining us, thank you, chat. It's been a lively one. Uh, and if you want, join us in the after party in the Discord channel from Tel Aviv, Israel. Peace. Thank you, Mahab.